And what I want us to do as we journey through is just to remember why John wrote his gospel. He he writes this, doesn't he, Uh, in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now this is there because... This is, it's there because um, John wants us to see and have the right perspective as we journey through the gospel to remember why he has written what he has written. It's because in John's day, just as in our time today, there are people who struggle to see how it can be that the one who created all things, who stands behind all things, is the same one who was nailed to a cross by Romans. How is it that he died? And people then, just as today, might think that it was just a terrible accident. It all went wrong. It was well-intentioned plan, but it was poor in its execution, that it was a mistake. And that's why John writes this, so that we might know what the death of the Lord Jesus is all about. And this evening, we're going to be looking at those, those verses that Helen read for us, where John shows us that the death on the cross is absolutely not a mistake. And John shows us that in these verses. He uses the testimony of scripture, the testimony of God himself and his own testimony to show us, to reveal that truth to us. And this evening we're going to be dwelling mainly on the testimony of scripture. And as we see that, I want us to grasp that if we can behold, if you can really behold what God has done, it can completely transform our lives. If we can behold what God has done, it can completely transform our lives. And I want us to see these three things from the passage. Hear the voice, see the lamb, and then behold. Hear, see, and behold. So firstly, the voice. The writer John starts with the witness of and the testimony of John the Baptist. Now, in the other Gospels, we're told that John was indeed a very, very noteworthy person, a cousin of Jesus himself. And like one of the famous Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist was dressed in camel hair and he lived in the wilderness. He was out there preaching a baptism of repentance. John was no marginal figure. His Facebook account would be absolutely chock-a-block with friend requests His sermons would be retweeted billions of times and his TikTok videos of the baptisms would have gone completely viral. Without doubt, he was well known. Indeed, we're told in Mark chapter 1 that all the people from Jerusalem and from Judea went out to him for baptism. And it's a very innovative ministry that John has that draws so many people to him. It's a nation that's run by the religious establishment of the day, and they want to know what's going on. What is this all about? Now, their concern was very simple. They knew about baptism, for sure. They knew about repentance. But John's baptism of repentance was something that they just didn't understand. The combination of those two things just didn't make sense to them. 
See, baptism at the time was uh, mainly something that was done by people who were not Jews, who were drawn to the living God, and they wanted to investigate more, and they were moving closer to the people of Israel. And so they underwent a baptism. It was it's kind of a, a ritual of purification to reveal to the world that they're God-fearers. Uh, they were deemed to be washed of the uncleanness that was associated with them as being Gentiles. And through that, they were allowed to draw closer to God and his people. But what John the Baptist is doing, by calling people who were Jews by birth to come to be baptized, was completely different. He was calling the Jewish people to come and repent of their sins that they might be forgiven. And for the religious rulers, that made no sense. They've got a sacrificial system, they have the temple, they have the law. What is John the Baptist doing? And as far as the religious leaders of the time believed, the Jewish nation had been chosen by God. They were God's possession. If they could keep the law, or as close to it as possible, then they were part of the covenant people of God. They were the people that God had bound to himself. They were the in crowd. So what on earth does a baptism of repentance for a Jew mean? What was John the Baptist doing in that wilderness? It needs explanation. And that's where we enter our reading at verse 19. The religious establishment uh, send, if you like, uh, their Ofsted inspectors uh, to do a surprise inspection. Uh, Take a look at the exchange uh, that happens in verses uh, 19b to 21. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him uh, who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Now, from the questions, you can see, right, can't you, that the religious leaders are indeed expecting God to send someone. Someone significant, someone that scripture has prophesied. And they look through their Bibles, our Old Testament, and they thought they knew who it was that God was going to send. So they ask, are you the Messiah? Nope. Are you Elijah? Because of his dress and where his ministry was taking place? No. Are you the prophet that Moses spoke of? No. The religious leaders are indeed expecting someone great, but John the Baptist doesn't fit any of their categories. So, who are you then, comes the question. Now let's take a look at what they ask and what John says and how the interrogators respond. Now, for people who were steeped in the scriptures, as these people claim to be, this should have been an absolute mic drop moment. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, the Pharisees who'd been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? It should have been a mic drop moment. Now, if Hollywood was making a film of this, this particular moment, there would have been a dum-dum-dum. You know, the camera goes from the interrogators over to John the Baptist and then back to the interrogators. But this isn't Hollywood. The religious leaders skip right by what John has just said and return to their own way of thinking. If you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, why do you baptize? They just don't see 
what scripture says. They missed what John the Baptist said. They just didn't understand. So let's just take a few minutes to unpack what John has said so that we can see what he said and why it's absolute dynamite. Firstly, uh, John, the gospel writer, tells us that John the Baptist has explained what he's doing by looking back to Isaiah. We see that in verse 23. He says that what he's doing is explained by one of the major prophets in the Old Testament. Not just that, not just that he points back to Isaiah generally, but he points back to an absolute pivotal moment in that book. Now, I know this is ambitious, what I'm about to do, okay, but uh, we're going to have a look at the book of Isaiah in six slides, okay? So, bear with me. Okay, so the outline of Isaiah, it's really helpful for us to kind of see this so that we can see why John the Baptist lands and cites what he does, okay? So what we're going to do is look at the outline of Isaiah. There are certain themes that are captured in the book, uh, and there are are certain chapters, okay, so we can see. And the blue line represents a a hinge, okay, a moment of complete change uh, in uh, what God is saying through that book. Okay, opening themes are themes of judgment. I I know that I'm painting with an incredibly broad brush here, okay, but just so we can see a 30,000 foot view of what's going on. First 39 chapters are chapters of judgment. It's judgment not only against uh, Israel and Judah, it's against the surrounding nations and indeed against uh, the earth itself. But inside that darkness, the judgment of that section, there's a chink of light, there's hope. God promises that he's going to send a messiah. Okay, we all can remember, can't we, Emmanuel, God with us. There's a promise of a deliverer to come. But it's in amongst all of this judgment. Then there's a hinge, and right at that moment, there's these wonderful verses where God says, comfort, comfort for my people, says God. And he goes on, receive from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, double for all her sins doesn't mean you're going to have to pay twice. Double for all your sins means that uh, in those days you would have a ledger, if you like. All the, all the stuff that you owed would be down on one side. And then to pay double would be to fold it because everything that you owed was met on the other side. So there's a promise here of something completely amazing that our debts are going to be settled by God himself. And then he goes on. He says... This is where we are. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Yeah, so there's a complete change and all of a sudden we're on a new part of what God is doing through the book of Isaiah. And the rest of the book, we see a revelation of the greatness of God. We see a suffering servant. And then finally, a program of God for peace. This is uh, the final judgment. Uh, this is the uh, pouring out uh, uh, new hearts in his people and a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, so that's kind of a 30,000 foot, uh, two minutes skip through the book of Isaiah. So you can see when he lands where he does in chapter 40, he's speaking an incredible truth. It's really, really incredible. And... This is what he goes on to say in 40, verses 3 to 5. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and the hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. 
the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, the Lord is coming. That is why what John the Baptist says is absolute dynamite. But the teachers of the law who had been looking into scripture, who had been waiting for centuries, just missed it. Just missed it. They looked, but they didn't see. So John the Apostle records this for us, that John the Baptist is the voice, is the prophesied voice to declare that the Lord is here, is coming. Okay, And that is what he's saying. And so we can see that Jesus is indeed the one foretold in scripture. So that's the voice. Secondly, the lamb. Let's uh, see what John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus. He says this in verse 29. uh, Do read with me. Uh, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So our second point is the lamb that takes away uh, the sin of the world. And here we can see two very obvious and simple things. This is the lamb, okay, and is the one that has come to take away the sin of the world. So the one that John the Baptist is a voice for has a mission. The lamb comes into the world to deal with the question of sin. And John the Baptist tells us that that is our biggest problem. And that's the one that God has sent his lamb to fix, namely the sin of the world. Now, do note this. This is the whole world. Okay, this is a problem for all of humanity. Wherever you are, wherever you come from, whenever you live, all people, everyone. The work of Christ is for everyone. The Jews thought that God was going to come and do a piece of work for them, but he came to do a piece of work for everyone. And no one falls outside the scope the range or the efficacy, the effectiveness, if you like, of what God is doing for us in and through Christ. So this work is for the vilest offender. The vilest offender. Who might you think this offer couldn't be for? Who, if they walked into this room now, might you roll your eyes into the back of your head and say, no way, not for him, not for him. Sex traffickers, murderers, rapists, child abusers. The doctrine of salvation which lies at the heart of Christianity is humbling. It's humbling because the Lamb of God came for me, came for you, personal, because we cannot save ourselves. I'll say this very carefully, okay? For the work of salvation, for the work of salvation... We are in as desperate need of rescue as the worst people that we can imagine. So it's a work of salvation that's available to everyone and it's desperately needed. Then there's the nature of our need. I mean, there are many, many problems in the world today. Climate crisis, human trafficking, poverty, abuse of children, wars. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But the biggest biggest and most profound problem is that our relationship with God is broken. That humanity lives in active rebellion against God. The world is flooded with that rebellion and that is sin. And humanity finds itself having offended the holiness and the goodness of a 
God that loves, loves them. The one true living God who loves them. And our rebellion is in all areas of our living. In the things that we say, the things that we do, the things that we think, the things that we don't say, the things that we don't do. Even in our goodness. Even in our goodness. It's all polluted because our hearts, rather than being fixed on God, are fixed on ourselves. Where we should find ourselves is standing before a righteous God in judgment, deserving to be cast eternally away from his goodness and eternal death. And that's the problem that God has come to fix. And he comes with a weapon for the fight. The Lamb of God. This is a picture that we have hanging uh, over our piano at home. And it's a very powerful reminder, isn't it, of what God has done, kind of bound up uh, in an image of a trust lamb. Now, as we journey through John's gospel, we're going to find the repeated mention of Passover. Uh, It's a motif that runs right the way, repeatedly through the book. Uh, Indeed, as Jesus is being delivered to be crucified in John chapter 19, uh, John reminds us again, uh, needlessly almost, uh, that it was Passover. And John is inviting us in these opening verses to bring together both the Passover lamb and what God is saying through the book of Isaiah. Now, let's just do that. Let's just quickly think about the Passover Uh, Exodus chapter 12, uh, the last of the ten plagues. God says to uh, his people through Moses to bring in a lamb. Uh, Keep it for four days that you might, uh, it's not just a quick in and a quick out. You bring the lamb in so that you will know the lamb. Keep it for four days. Know that this is the lamb that's going to die for you. Kill the lamb, daub its blood on the wooden posts. The destroyer, the angel of death, journeys over. Anyone found to be not sheltering under the blood of the lamb, the firstborn in that house is taken. If you have blood on the post, the angel of death will pass over you. You're protected by the blood of the lamb. And the people of Israel, they did indeed leave Egypt under the protection of the blood of the lamb, rescued from slavery and bondage in Egypt. So that's the Passover. And here we have uh, our outline of Isaiah. And there is, in the midst of that uh, second section, if you like, uh, the revelation to us of the suffering servant. And there we read this. That this suffering servant, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Isaiah is telling us 
that in God's perfect plan, the point at which we journey from chapter 40 of Isaiah to the end of that book, in the middle of that, there is a suffering servant. That somehow, in God's perfect plan of redemption, there is going to be one who is going to die for his people, who's going to die in their place. Now, John's gospel, almost half of that gospel, is focused on the last day of Jesus' life. Uh, The end, if you like, is focused on the crucifixion, the death of Christ. Obviously, the resurrection is also in view, but really focused, the last half of the book, on the death of Jesus Christ. And right at the start, winding all the way back, John the Apostle tells us what our perspective should be. And that voice calls out to confirm the prophecy. We should see what Jesus does, understanding that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the one who will die on Passover, who is the prophetic realization of Isaiah's suffering servant. We've had a lot of information this evening, haven't we? We've had a lot of information. We've had information on John the Baptist, we've had information on the Passover, we've had information on Isaiah. But if that's all we have, we're poorer for it. We're basically picking our own pockets. Yeah, we're certainly better informed, but there is more. If information that is, is the only thing that we have, then we find ourselves like the people who went to question John the Baptist. They knew their Bible. They knew that it's, they knew what it said, but they completely missed Jesus. So how does knowing this, how does knowing this change our hearts? When John the Baptist in verse 29 shows us Jesus, the NIV translation says, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And if all we have is knowledge, then that's all that we'll do. We'll just look. The word that the NIV translators use uh, for look is actually much stronger. It's much, much richer. Uh, the Old King James uses the word behold. Yeah, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that gives a richness to what John is saying that we just don't get with the word look. And that's our third point, behold. So when we say look, uh, we tend to mean something like notice. Or see, yeah, I see a giveaway sign or I, I, I see uh, the chair. But behold is deeper, isn't it? Now it creates a sense of, of wonder, of focus, of importance, uh, a sense of marvel, uh, entranced, enchanted perhaps, captivated to fall into the revelation of something incredibly spectacular or beautiful. And there's an urgency there as well, isn't there? It's much, much deeper than just look. Indeed, the Lamb of God is something amazing. The Lamb of God is something to behold. But we oftentimes tend to behold other things, don't we? Our hearts tend to be captured by other things. And other things draw our attention. Sometimes we take good things, our looks, our money, our smarts, our social standing. We take those and we make them ultimate things in our lives. We don't behold God, but the things that he has given us. And they become our idols. Now I wonder, as you've gone through uh, the Real Change series, what idols has God revealed in your own heart? 
Have you had God reveal things that you're holding in your heart as ultimate things? Things that get in the way of knowing, really knowing God or enjoying his fullness. C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory, reflects uh, on the things that we behold, uh, the things that we set our hearts on, the things we desire. And his analysis is uh, that we don't behold the promises in God's word. Our desires get attached to other things, smaller things. And he writes this. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of scripture, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Because our desires are too small, we just behold the wrong things. We behold the things that God has given us rather than beholding God himself. So how do we behold the Lamb of God? How do we get the perspective that allows us to behold the Lamb? To get that perspective, we, we, Scripture gives us the power that we need. The power that we need to tear down the idols in our lives. How do we do that? This slide, uh, again, we're just going back to the outline of Isaiah. Um, it's slightly faded out on the right-hand side uh, of the slide as you're seeing it. But that's where we should stand, in judgment, uh, under God. Because God sees us all the way to the bottom. He knows the darkness in our hearts. He knows the places that we simply aren't brave enough even to look into our own hearts to see. He knows those places. Yet his heart for us is to be with him. He knows us to the bottom and he wants us to know that we are loved to the skies. And how do we know that? We know that because he sent his only son, the Lamb of God, to die in our place, to pay for our rebellion. And through that, we are moved from the uh, judgment side across into new life. We've moved from death to life. We've been adopted as God's children. We've moved from death to life. And that was all because of the work of the suffering servant, because God's one and only son, who had eternal life, he put that down. He gave that to us and picked up the price of our rebellion. There was an amazing exchange And I wonder, do you see that? Do you see the glory of what he has done for you? you, Can you imagine the pain of God sending his only son to die for a world that was rebelling against him? For you and I, as we rebelled against him. And yet he still sent his son. His son still came and climbed the cross for us. And because of that, we have moved from death to life. We've become children of God. 
But it's not just a, a get out of jail free card. Okay, sometimes that's what we think, right? That we've been moved from death to life if we've been forgiven. You have been forgiven, but we have also been given so much more. We are now children of God. Our names are written in the book of life. We're going to a new heavens and a new earth. God promises to dwell inside us by his Holy Spirit. He's never going to abandon us. He's never going to leave us. Have you held on to those promises? Have you looked at those promises? Have you dwelt into those promises? Because as you do, you will behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Have you done those things? As we behold the Lamb of God, as we behold what he's done for us, we will be able to tear down the idols. We'll be able to put down those things that aren't God's, aren't God's best for us. And we'll be able to fix our hearts on the one who came for us. We'll have the power to tear down the idols and live for him. A second outworking of beholding the Lamb of God is we'll want to allow other people to behold the Lamb. We want to be able to tell other people of this lamb that came for us. And I know I mentioned this last week, but I want to flag it again. My encouragement to you is, if you have a friend who doesn't know the Lord Jesus, ask them, would you like to read John's Gospel with me? An eyewitness testimony of the Lord Jesus. When you say it's just the John, John's Gospel, it's very small, it's, it's easy fits in your pocket, it doesn't look like a bigger gig for someone to say, yeah, okay, I'll spend some time reading that with you. And if you're terrified at the prospect of doing that, then we have these aids. Okay, these are uh, step-by-step, really simple ways of sitting down and reading with someone. Yep, it's got the questions, it's even got the answers. Everything that you need to be able to read the Gospel of John with someone who doesn't know, even if your own knowledge of the Gospel of John is limited, yeah, this is a fabulous tool to equip you to do that. If you'd like to know more, chat to me, chat to Colin, chat to Neil. Uh, we'd love to be able to put these in your hands and equip you uh, for that. So to close, let's just, you know, my encouragement to you would be just to dwell on those truths, meditate on them. Yeah, reflect on them as we come to communion this evening. In the weeks ahead, you know, pray those truths into the very core of your being. Uh, and you'll find that you're no longer looking at the Lamb of God, but you're beholding him. And as you start to behold him, you'll start to grow to be more and more like him. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son as the Lamb of God to rescue us. Help us by the power of your Spirit and through your word to put down the idols in our hearts. You know the darkness in our hearts. You know us all the way to the bottom. Allow us at the same time to see that we are loved to the stars because of Christ's work on the cross. Help us to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we see that with greater clarity in your grace, shape and mould us to become more like your Son. And in his name we pray. Amen.